I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. And our text is from Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 38. And as some background to that, we'll read the first 26 verses together. Let's read Mark chapter 8. We'll read verse 1 to 38, and the section we'll be focusing on will be verse 27 to 38. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having ears, do you not see? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on them, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus, and this is where our text begins, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, 
but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what does it mean to follow Christ? What sort of life can we expect as Christians living in the 21st century? And what sort of life can these children baptized this morning expect as they grow up as God's children in this world? What is true discipleship? Well, this is the question that Jesus addresses with His disciples, His students, and it's also the the question that we'll look at together this morning. And we'll see this morning that to understand ourselves, we need to, first of all, understand Christ, who He is, and what He's done. After all, we bear His name, Christian, Christ person. And so, to understand our identity, we need to understand His identity, And then we also need to understand what He's done. To understand our calling in this world, we need to understand the path that He has walked. And so I preach to you God's Word from Mark 8 with this theme. By revealing the nature of His own mission, Christ unveils the nature of true discipleship. And we'll see that discipleship involves three steps. First of all, understand who Jesus is. Second, understand the radical path that He took. And third, follow Him down the same path. Well, up to this point in in Mark's gospel, Mark has clearly shown the authority of Jesus Christ. This has been something which he's really been focusing on, on that theme, the authority of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. In chapter 2, he showed that authority by, Jesus showed that authority by healing a paralyzed man. Uh, Perhaps you remember I I preached on this text here last year sometime, it was probably almost a year ago. The friends of this man, they dug through the, the roof to let down the paralyzed man, and then Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. And then he also said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, 
and then he healed that man. He proved his authority by giving him, restoring his ability to walk. So we see Jesus' authority over sin and over suffering, and he also showed his authority over Satan and his armies. In chapter 5, he cast out an army of demons from that man called Legion. He sent those demons into the pigs, and that showed Jesus' authority over all the forces of evil. And further, Jesus has also shown his authority as a teacher. His teaching was said to be far more compelling than the scribes, the other teachers of the day. That's the first half of Mark's gospel. He proves that Jesus has authority as a son of God. And now here in chapter 8, the Lord takes initiative to ensure that His disciples understand His authority. In chapter 8, verse 27, as they're out on the road, He asks His disciples a question. And in that day, it was normally the other way around. Normally, disciples would ask questions from their rabbi. The rabbi is one who normally would answer questions. But here, Jesus took initiative and He asked His disciples a question. Why? Because they really needed to understand who He is. Who do men say that I am? And the response is varied. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Now, these are all great, famous men in Israel's history, that Jesus has earned a reputation among the greats. For example, King Herod in, in chapter 6 had heard reports of Jesus and thought that He was John the Baptist, returned from the dead. And yet, even though these, these great men were famous in Israel's past, they were only forerunners of the Messiah. Jesus is someone far greater. And so we see that the crowds haven't quite gotten it yet. They're still in the dark about the nature of Jesus' true identity. Their vision remained clouded, and they were blinded to who Jesus really was. But then Jesus pressed in and asked His disciples personally, Forget about the crowds for a moment, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers as a spokesman for the group, and he said, you are the Messiah. As a small side note, Peter is one of the, the main sources of information for Mark as he wrote this gospel. And the church father Papias said that Mark himself wasn't an eyewitness of the life of Christ, but he received his information from Peter. And you'll notice as you read through Mark's gospel that Peter plays a, a large role. And here, Peter has begun to understand who Jesus is. You are the Messiah. And we think, yes, he's got it. He knows who Jesus is. And beloved, this is a result of the Lord's work in Peter. Now, in an earlier part of chapter 8, the disciples, they still didn't understand about the loaves of bread. In chapter 8, verse 21, and Jesus rebuked them and He said, how is it that you do not understand? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Remember, Jesus had rebuked them for their lack of understanding. And then, Jesus had healed that blind man. Now, Mark, throughout his gospel, he loves to use what we could call sandwich structures. He tells a story, that's the top part of the sandwich, and then he puts something in between, like Vegemite or jam, and then he finishes off that story that he's begun. Well, here's another sandwich. In chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus had rebuked them for their lack of understanding, that they didn't understand, 
Then he had healed the blind man, and then after that, they begin to understand. That's why Peter gets it now. You are the Christ. You see, the Lord, just as he healed the blind man, has now begun to heal the disciples' spiritual blindness. He's begun to open their eyes, just as he opened the eyes of the blind man. And now by asking this question, Jesus showed that it was really important for them to understand who he was. They needed to know his identity. And that's also what God wants us to see this morning, beloved. Just as the question came to the disciples, now he brings the question home to us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, this is the most important question you will ever answer. This is the first step of following Jesus is to understand who He is. He's more than a great man. He's more than the great teachers of the past, teachers like Aristotle or Gandhi. He's far greater than all the great men. Jesus is the powerful Messiah, the Son of God, who came to save the sins of His people, save His people from their sins. And beloved, this is something that He has revealed to us in His grace Because by nature, we're like the disciples. We're blind to our sin. Our minds are darkened that we're not able to know God. We're not able to acknowledge His authority. But in His grace, God has healed our spiritual blindness, just as He did for Peter and His disciples. He has worked our spirit to His Spirit to illumine our darkened minds so that we are able to know God through Jesus Christ. We are able to confess that Jesus has authority as the Son of God. Well, is that true also for you this morning? The question of Jesus comes to each one of us. Who do you say that I am? What is your confession about Jesus? Can you confess along with Peter, you are the Christ? The first step in following Jesus Christ is to understand that He truly is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was anointed by His Father to carry out the mission of saving us from our sin. And that leads us into the second step of discipleship that Jesus teaches. Now that the disciples have finally realized that Jesus is the Messiah, He teaches them what sort of Messiah He is. Now, this is a major turning point in the gospel according to Mark. As I mentioned, He's proven to us that Jesus is the powerful Messiah, a miracle-working Messiah. And now Mark will show to us how Jesus will use this power and authority. He will show to us that Jesus will use this authority to suffer, to lay down His life. He immediately warns them in verse 30 not to tell anyone that discovery. He's already given this call to to secrecy. Uh, In chapter 1, he healed a leper and he said, show yourself to the priest, but don't tell anyone. In chapter 6, he healed Jairus' daughter and and commanded them strictly that no one should know about it. Jesus wanted them to keep it a secret that he was the Messiah. Now, why would that be the case? Why would Jesus want to keep his identity a secret? Well, there are two reasons for this. And the first is that this information had great potential for misunderstanding. The term Messiah, it was, it was a term that was pregnant with political overtones. People often talked about a coming Messiah. There was a lot of hype and expectation about the Messiah. 
and what people expected when they talked about this Messiah was a conquering king. They expected another powerful king like David to lead the people in battle, to drive out the Romans and, and reclaim the Holy Land for the Jews. That's what people talked about when they talked about the Messiah. And as we'll see shortly, Peter himself was pretty far off the mark with his own understanding of the term Messiah. He's even had the benefit of sitting under Christ's private teaching. If Peter was so misguided, what about the general public? And so, because that information had great potential for misunderstanding, that was one of the reasons that Jesus commanded secrecy. But second, it was part of Christ's suffering that He would not be honored as the King that He was. His path was one that first involved suffering, and it wasn't yet His time to receive glory and acclaim. But first, He was to suffer the scorn of His countrymen. He would not yet be esteemed as the King that He was. And so, for now, Jesus' identity had to remain a secret. It was part of His suffering, and that's what He also began to teach them now in verse 31. This is the first of three predictions of His death, each given on the road to Jerusalem, on the road to the cross. And notice that as Jesus says this, that there is no option. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. This is the path that He was destined to walk down, a path that He intentionally came to this earth for. It was necessary for the Messiah to be a suffering servant. If we put ourselves in the disciples' sandals for a, for a minute, we can understand why they were so confused, that Jesus was their hero. He was their rabbi. They looked up to Him. He was the one able to do these wonderful miracles. And why would He talk about suffering? They wanted Him to be a living King, they wanted Him to rule from a throne in Jerusalem, but why did He say that He would be killed? Peter was shocked, and so he rebuked Jesus. And notice that as, as Peter did that, he was elevating his own understanding of the Messiah above what Jesus was teaching him. He thought he knew better than Jesus. That can't be the way, not suffering. We want everyone to know that you're the Messiah, we want you to be king in Jerusalem. But the Lord turned and He looked around at His disciples. Perhaps you noticed that detail, that He looked at them. He wanted them to understand. He wanted to teach them in this moment. And so, He addressed all of them as He gave that severe rebuke to Peter, get behind me, Satan. See, this was a temptation from Satan. Just as Satan had tempted Jesus in the desert to forego the cross you remember that temptation? Satan said, you just bow down to me now, and then you can have all these kingdoms of the world. Well, here again, Satan tempted Jesus, don't go the way of the cross. But our Lord, again, shows that same commitment to the path that had been destined for Him. Just as He rebuked Satan. Now He rebukes Satan again through Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Our Lord resolutely set His face toward the cross. And that's the lesson that Jesus wanted all of His disciples to learn. It might not make sense according to a human way of thinking, but this was the divine will. This was the path that God had designed to save sinners. God's ways are higher than ours. 
and his plan was to save a people for himself through the suffering and death of his son. And even though Satan tempted Jesus to forego the cross, yet our Lord was determined to suffer for our sake. See, beloved, the love of our Savior. See his resolve to save us. This is the way our Lord used his authority as the Son of God to give up his life for us. In love, he set his face toward the cross. The second step of learning from Jesus Christ is to understand the path he walked, and that is a path of suffering for our sake. Peter didn't want to accept Jesus' word, but the Lord calls us to receive that word and to receive our Lord Jesus Christ as the suffering servant for us. Step one of discipleship is to understand who Jesus is. Step two is to understand that as the powerful Messiah, He came to this earth to suffer and to die. His death on the cross was not a tragic mistake, but it was part of God's eternal plan to save sinners. And that also has radical implications for us as we follow Christ, as we live by faith in the Son of God. That's what we'll see in our third point, the call to follow Jesus down the same path. Now, Christ has an important lesson for His followers, and He calls the crowd of people to Himself, referring to the, the broader group of disciples, not just the twelve. And He says in verse 34, "'Whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross.'" and follow me. Now, in Jewish culture, rabbis had a a close relationship with their students. As we can see from Jesus and His disciples, they traveled around together and they, they lived life together. But Jesus now teaches that the student will be like the teacher, the servant will be like his master. They might have expected that going around with Jesus would have meant good things for them, that it would have given them public acclaim, a good name in, in Jerusalem, popularity and success. But Jesus turns those expectations upside down, and He says, if you want to follow Me, you are going to suffer too. He says, first of all, deny yourself. Rather than live for ourselves, followers of Christ are called to deny themselves. Now, that's a, that's a totally different way of thinking. Before we knew Christ, we wanted to live for ourselves, And that's part of our old nature that we need to continually put to death. Because now that we do know Christ, now that we know we're saved by Him, we we want to deny ourselves. We no longer make it our life goal to be successful, to build up our business so that we are recognized and revere. We no longer make it our life goal to receive praise and recognition from people, but now we die to ourselves. That's the life to which Jesus calls His followers, a life of self-denial. In John Calvin's Institutes, he has a, a title in one of the sections, the Christian life, the sum of the Christian life is self denial. If anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself. And second, he calls us to carry a cross. Now, this is a shocking image. Perhaps we've become somewhat used to this image today, but the cross was a a cruel punishment for the worst criminal, 
it caused people to, to shudder in, in dread. It was a, a death of great shame where people would shake their heads, they would jeer at you. On the way to a crucifixion, crucifixion the humiliated criminal was often forced to, to carry the crossbeam for his cross. And that was a walk of shame. People would look at such a man carrying that cross on his back and they would scorn him. He had done some terrible crime against Rome to deserve that death. Shame on him. That's the image that Jesus uses to describe what it's like to follow him. It's not going to be glamorous, but it's a life in which we endure shame, a life in which people laugh at us, they will ridicule us. Now, one example of someone who shared in the shame of Christ was Anisiphorus. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy about when he was in prison in Rome and, and no one wanted to see him because that would have been to associate with his shame. But there was a man who was not ashamed of Paul's chains, Anisiphorus. He came to Rome and he especially looked Paul up in prison to find him and to come and encourage him. And Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1 about Onesiphorus, he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He wasn't ashamed to visit Paul in prison because he wasn't ashamed of Paul's Savior. He willingly bore the cross of identifying with Christ and identifying with Christ's servant. Well, this shame which the Lord Jesus called His disciples to bear is something that all believers can expect. There is a cross to carry. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, indeed, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Peter also says in 1 Peter 4, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Jesus calls us to carry a cross. Oh, dear Christian, this is the life to which our Lord calls each of us to follow. This is the life which these children baptized this morning can expect to live as they live growing up following Christ. And we need to teach our children that this is part of what it means to follow Christ, that we are called to share in His shame. We need to learn that self-denial is the sum of the Christian life and that we no longer live for ourselves but for Him who died for our sakes and was raised. We need to learn to take up our cross every day and to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's reflect on what that might look like for us today. Let's each ask ourselves this question, in what way is Christ calling me to deny myself? And what is the cross He calls me to carry? Following Christ, it might mean denying your career ambitions for the sake of raising your family in a godly way. You know, if your work is taking up so much time that you can't invest in the spiritual growth of your wife or children, spouse or children, denying yourself might mean cutting back on hours or saying no to an opportunity that involves being away from home. Or following Christ may mean denying your comfort as you share your faith with your non-Christian friend. It's much easier to say nothing, isn't it? There's no shame in that. It doesn't offend anyone. But carrying your cross may mean standing up for your faith, even if it might bring ridicule when people might laugh at you. Or following Christ may mean giving up on some of your life goals in order to pursue full-time gospel ministry or perhaps even overseas mission. 
It may mean denying yourself by getting up in the middle of the night for your crying child when you're already tired and you've just gotten back to sleep. Or it might mean looking out for that kid on the school playground who has no friends. It might mean being their friend. You know, there might be shame in that. It's not the cool thing to do. People might even laugh at you. In what ways is Jesus Christ calling you to deny yourself and take up your cross? You can understand why people are offended by Christ, why many rejected Him and they didn't want to follow Him, why even the disciples struggled to understand Christianity, and why still today there is so much misunderstanding about Christ and about us, His followers. Why would anyone want such a life of self-denial and shame? Well, Jesus is real about the cost, but He also shows us that this is the best life worth living. He gives us motivation to carry our cross and to follow Him. And He teaches a lesson now which we could call the economics of the kingdom of God. And according to kingdom of God economics... Following Christ down this shameful path of self-denial is the best way to spend our life. It's the smartest investment with the greatest reward. We really need to understand this. And this is also something we need to teach our children. Verse 35, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Here Jesus teaches a great paradox that we find life by losing it. We save our life by giving it away. And that's because true life is is never found inside ourselves, but it's found in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of our life, and we find our life in Him as we follow Him. You see, if we're not joined to Him, if we're not following Him, the reality is that we're dead in sin we will face eternal punishment because of our sin. Because of our rebellion against God, we will lose our life if we try and find it inside ourselves. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, your life will be lost. And if that's the case, then what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What advantage is it if you you own half the mines of Western Australia? Because one day you'll die, and then they won't benefit you anymore. What profit is it to you if you have every material possession you could dream of, but you lose your soul? If you desire to save your earthly life, Christ says that you will lose it eternally. But on the other hand, if you lose your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel, you will save it. If you willingly give your entire life in service to Christ as you follow Him down the path that He calls you to walk, then you'll find life. We find life in Christ even as we share in His suffering. We might lose everything else, but we've gained Him. And that means we've gained everything. We've gained true and eternal life. And that's because, beloved, He suffered in a way that we never will. He suffered on a cross that we will never carry because on the cross He suffered God's anger for us against all of our sin, so that God's anger is fully satisfied and that we can now have everlasting life with Him. Our cross is not the same as His. His cross involved bearing the full weight of our rebellion against God, 
But our cross means that by faith we receive this means of atonement. We identify with Him. We call Him our Savior. We identify with Him even if that means scorn or shame or ridicule. We bear a cross, but it's nothing like His. Don't you want to identify, beloved, with such a Savior because of the cross that He has borne? Don't you want to identify with our Savior who has loved us so much that He gave His life for us? Don't you want to stand up and tell everyone about Him? It will mean self-denial and a cross in this life, but one day we will exchange our cross for a crown. If we are united to Christ and suffer for Him, now we will also be united with Him and share in His glory. 1 Peter 4 verse 13, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, for when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. One day our Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back with power and glory. He will bring His own to Himself. And then we who have shared in His shame will also share in His glory. He will come back as the glorious King. And He will not be ashamed to call us His people. He will not be ashamed to declare us righteous before His Father. Indeed, He will say to us those blessed words, Well done, my servant. You have been good and faithful in identifying with me, in bearing your cross. You have endured the shame of my name, and now you will live with me. You will reign with me in my glory. Come, enter into my joy." Well, Sundar Singh grew up as an Indian Sikh, and he became a Christian at the age of 15. And when he told his, his family, they began to, to persecute him for his newfound faith. Sundar wrote a book called With and Without Christ, and in that book he wrote this, he said, when my family saw that I was not to be turned from my faith, they began to persecute me. But the persecution was nothing compared to that miserable unrest I had without Christ, And it was not difficult for me to endure the troubles and persecution which now began. Without Christ, I was like a fish out of water or like a bird in the water. But with Christ, I am in the ocean of love. And while in the world, I'm in heaven. And that, beloved, is the wonderful truth that our Lord Lord taught. To give up our life, to willingly identify with Him, is to truly find our life. We've seen three steps of what it means to follow Christ. First, we must know who He is, the powerful Messiah, the authoritative Son of God. And second, we must know that He came, used this authority to suffer and to die. And He suffered on our behalf, bearing the full weight of our sin. And third, we must not be ashamed to call Him our Savior, believing with Him and identifying with Him, even though that means self-denial, and sharing in His shame. So, let's take up our cross again this week in union with our Savior. Let's deny ourselves and live for Him. We are His. We are Christians. Let's give our lives for His honor and glory. Amen.